This program is not about suicide. If you or someone you know needs immediate assistance with suicidal ideation or depression, please contact your local 24-7 crisis support service. If you're in Australia, try Lifeline on 13 11 14, Kids Helpline on 1800 55 1800 or the other services listed on our website at wheelercentercom slash betteroffdead. There is no death. There's only me, me, me who's dying. My name's Andrew Denton and you're listening to Better Off Dead, my search for the truth about assisted dying. It began when I was invited to attend the Hope Anti-Euthanasia Convention in Adelaide, featuring speakers from around the world. Here I heard dire warnings about what was happening in Belgium, the Netherlands and Oregon, where laws to help people die already exist. I heard of the vulnerable being made expendable and of people being killed without their consent. I heard of blind twins being euthanized after having to shop around for two years to find a doctor who'd do it. And I heard of a slippery slope where the number of people seeking to die was sharply on the rise. Above all, I heard two key accusations. That the safeguards don't work and that the elderly and disabled were threatened. I took careful note of it all, then took off overseas to see if their warnings held true. Now, many months later... I sat down with Hope's director, Paul Russell, to talk through what I'd learned. The fear of a bad death. Let's not make bad laws. And you'll go to sleep. Denying them another option. This leaves me no choice. Of the eugenic impulse. The devaluation of We just don't talk about it. Against the invasion of death. We play the game. I felt judged. It was over. People want to know. I know they can't control me. The police are obliged to charge me. What the hell can you do? Murder, manslaughter. Denying them another option. Don't do this lightly. Okay, uh, I'll start with the easiest question. Could you give me your name, your age and your official position? Uh, My name's Paul Russell, uh, 57 years old, and I'm the director of an organisation called HOPE, Preventing Euthanasia and Assisted Suicide. Can I just say I have extreme envy? I just heard your voice in the headphones. You've got the voice I always wanted. (laughs) It happens sometimes. You've got a radio voice. (laughs) I've got a radio head too, I think. (laughs) Paul Russell is a welcoming, avuncular man with a ready laugh and an appetite for a fight. Formerly a senior officer for the Catholic Archdiocese of Adelaide, he quit full-time work four years ago to take up the battle against assisted dying. On the question of euthanasia-assisted dying, if you look at Canada, you look at the States, even New Zealand, there seems to be an increasing momentum for people to want to know more about and have more choice about Mm. what happens at the end of their life. Mm. Do you have a sense that maybe you're swimming against the tide of contemporary history? (laughs) I guess that's possible. Um, I sort of hope not, obviously. Um, Yeah, it may may well be the case. Being motivated by my sense of what justice is, ultimately, you know, I'm not going to throw in the towel because, you know, there's a tsunami coming. I'm... I'm not going to stop advocating. That's just who I am. And I should preface the conversation we're having by saying I think all the questions that you raise and that are raised by those who oppose these laws are valid questions. They should be asked and must be asked about the vulnerable, those who may be threatened. How, if you have these laws, do you make them safe? So I'd 
genuinely respect the conversations that you raise. My question's more about how those conversations are held. Mm. No, that's fair enough, but I, I think it's sometimes it's a frustration on the polarised nature of the debate. At the symposium, one of your guests by video link was uh, Theo de Boer, the, mm. the Dutch uh, professor ethicist, who uh, had resigned from the uh, euthanasia review committees and become a critic of the system. He talked about euthanasia becoming a, a default option for, for dying cancer patients. And he particularly talked about the annual 15% rise in euthanasia deaths in the Netherlands as being very alarming. Why do you find that alarming? Uh, well, a number of things. Now, we must recognise that the law in Belgium and the Netherlands is broadly written. And that was for people at the end of life for whom pain management wasn't sufficient in subjective terms, that, you know, there would be a way up for them in terms of euthanasia or assisted suicide. You're really looking at a ceiling of probably somewhere of the order of two, maybe 5% is a stretch of people uh, that that would have affected. And so I would have thought by now we would have reached a sort of a ceiling or a plateau in the, in, in the numbers of deaths. Well, that's clearly not the case. It's clearly still escalating. What that points to, I think, is really a sociological matter that could be used to draw a conclusion that the societies there have become very blasé about accepting this. And I think what concerns me most is is the stuff that you almost can't prove. You know, <laughs> the, the how society changes, how people's views of other people's change. Are we going to be sort of translating in some way, perhaps in some incremental way, a view of people with disabilities, people who are ill, people who are ageing, uh, people who have all sorts of issues who aren't perhaps, you know, contributing to society in the way the rest of us do, for example. Are we going to be translating that kind of view writ large across our community in some way? And and I think that the figures suggest that in some way. That 15% figure, though, when you put it in context, becomes something different because it represents a population which, like ours, is getting older. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of these cases have always been and still remain cancer, heart failure, neurological. Mm-hmm. And the number is less than 4% of the people that die in the Netherlands every year, mm-hmm. which seems to me to be quite a long stretch from the idea that the genie is out of the bottle, that this is a society somehow in freefall. Oh, well, you know, that was Tio's call. Um, I'm not sure I would have used that point. I, I can't. I, I, I'm not there. He's the one that is seeing it. I wouldn't say T.O. is now, you know, um, a spear thrower or a banner carrier for us, are the argument, not by any stretch. And the interesting thing is that the Dutch themselves overwhelmingly support their own laws. I think it's 85%, 5% opposed. Mm. Yep. The medical profession's are on board with it. No mainstream party has attempted to repeal right. or amend the laws. Mm-hmm. They are very comfortable and confident with how their laws are operating. So... When I hear suggestions, which are often made that the Netherlands is a society which is losing it, I think that's a misrepresentation of how they themselves see what's happening. Well, I mean, you could turn that around and say the fact that they don't see there's a problem is the self-evidence of the problem. I mean, I mean where, where do you go? Um, well, I, but I, that's I, a little bit uh, <laughs> patronising, isn't it? No, I, I mean, I'm it's saying my... you could suggest. I'm not saying you should <laughs> by any means. And none of this is ex- exact science. So, you know, when there are a lot of studies that look at the figures and I think that's a really important thing to do and there are from time to time horror stories that come up and it's important to explore them as well. And, look, 
Um, I could be accused, if you looked at my blog, of being polemic at times with some of the data, etc. You might say, well, in a sense, that's my job. And yes, we want to win. But at the same time, you know, you have to, you have to take the time to look at the truth of all this. And really, it's not so much that there's an empirical framework to the deepest reasons of why I think the way I do. It's more of what I think is an understanding of the human condition, the fact that injustices do happen, in fact that the law cannot always fix problems, uh, nor can it contain problems, that perhaps we need to find better expression for the sense of compassion that we have. Yeah, so it's, it's not sort of measurable in that sense. In, tr- in truth, though, there is no law that would ever pass muster for you because you fundamentally object to the idea of there being such a law. No, I'm sorry, that's quite a slight misrepresentation of my views, but you, you're not to know otherwise. No, um, no, look, please please tell me I'm wrong. Right. Tell me tell me the law that would pass muster for you. I don't think there is one. That's the point. Sometimes I looked at bills and I thought, hey, wow, that's pretty good. But when you look at them, there are some fundamental things that can't be addressed in a black letter law. My friend Craig Wallace talked about this in the Senate inquiry um, uh, last year. He was saying, well, you know, what's terminal illness? Give me a definition of terminal illness that suits. And his point was that many of his friends in the disability community have situations that, other than for some support or another, actually are terminal. So how do we write a framework that works? I think also that the problem is once we cross, once we cross a boundary that's been in existence for uh, many millennia, we've really got to pause and say, well, you know, okay, we've, we've held the line on this for so long now. There's a reason for that. And, you know, I think it wasn't Chesterton that said something about, you know, before you move to knock down a fence, perhaps you should ask why someone put it there in the first place. Yeah, so and those I are think... Uh, but there is another way of looking at this, which is that all societies face the terrible reality of people that die, awful deaths that, that are beyond the help of medical science. Mm. So the other way to look at it is, well, as a society, knowing what we know with our vast improvements in, in medical knowledge... Is there more we can do to help these people? Which is, uh, yes, you could say, well, that's centuries of tradition uh, that we're turning against. Mm. But societies always change. You know, 3,000 years ago, Spartans were throwing babies off cliffs. As human beings grow and learn more, we also change what it is we do based on our knowledge. Look, that is self-evidently obvious, but it still doesn't change the fact that it is an incredibly serious matter. You you mentioned there about people we can't help. I don't think that's the case. I mean, unpack what can't help means. You know, we can help. Uh, We certainly can help. Um, We can keep developing. I wonder too, you know, whether sometimes the whole process of innovation and development of society is because we're banging up against a wall and we decide, well, how are we going to stop that? Do we knock the wall down or do we allow that creative tension to, to move us on in the fields of science. And or do we create a ladder which allows some people to go over it? Ah, well, there you go, changing my metaphor. <laughs> improving, improving, improving your metaphor. <laughs> you, you talked before about shocking cases, individual cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, one which I know that Hope talks about and a lot of people talk about is the deaf Belgian twins, uh, mm-hmm. Mark and Eddie Verbessen. What do you know of that case? <laughs> That's a really hard, really hard case. You know, you had the story of his two twins who had twin ailments uh, and the beautiful story of them having a life together and they're going blind you know they were deaf uh, and they had the difficulties so 
you know, their sight was obviously critical to them and I have every empathy with that situation. But they looked for two years to find a doctor who would agree uh, to euthanise them. Because essentially the presenting story is we have two people here going blind. <laughs> I mean, you can't... I find that in my head I, I have a conflict in, in a sense with that because we could headline and I, look, I may have even done it. Twins used those because they were going blind. I mean, simple home people go, duh, that's ridiculous. You know, we have to accept that there was a backstory. And it was a very, very difficult backstory. But at the same time, it's it, not a terminal illness. They had other degenerative illnesses, certainly. But I struggle with this this idea that, you know, you can go to a doctor, but I don't know whether it was their regular doctor or whatever, and he says no. And then you say, well, I'll go and find somebody else. And this process of taking two years. So even in, even in that society, clearly, at least for whatever number of doctors they saw who said no, there was some sort of recognition that, no, 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 no. This is not where our law is intended. Um, this is not the solution for you, whatever. Um, and then they found the right ones. Well, they always were going to find someone who would do it. To me, that's one of the problems with these laws. Uh, having to sort of go to two doctors is not a roadblock for someone who is just simply suicidal. It's not. Can I unpack a few of the things you said there? Not a terminal disease, but as you know, under Belgian law, that is not the, the criteria. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's unbearable and untreatable suffering. Yeah. The second thing is this idea of doctor shopping. Their GP, the family's GP, mm. and the GP is always the first yes, port of call in these cases. Yeah. Uh, he said, and he, he swore this in an affidavit to the Canadian Supreme Court, that there was no doctor shopping. So I would be inclined mm. to believe his version of events. Uh, so would I. I actually hadn't heard that. Um, but that was as it was reported, that they'd look for two years. And, I think um, maybe you need to change the story on your website. <laughs> Perhaps I do. You know, that is a difficulty. Mm-hmm. That is a real difficulty in this stuff. And, you know, there are those that sort of pick it when people get things slightly wrong like that. But um, Well, but I raised this because I think it's important. It is important. But um, but to me, again, as I went back earlier, it, 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 from what I saw about that story, it was an example of a problem that I perceived. It wasn't proof. No, but but it's held up. You know that the personal stories are the most powerful ones in these arguments. Mm. I'm sure you're aware that the the parents and the siblings of the brothers supported this choice, which which puts another complexion on it too, the the compassion they showed Mm. to support what would be the hardest choice anybody could ever make. Yes, no no question. I I definitely knew of that. As research for this podcast, we contacted the family of those boys and they expressed to us their great distress that anti-euthanasia coalitions, including Mm. HOPE, Mm. would be using their story as an example of a law gone wrong. Mm. And, you know, you're a very decent guy. Mm. Does it bother you that you're adding to their already considerable anguish by making stories like this, which you've already said you don't know all the details, making stories like this into, if you like, a bullet to fire in the wall? Oh, okay, that's a really good point. I certainly don't want to add to anyone's distress personally. It, it does upset me to think that I may have. I do get polemic at times, I, I, don't, I don't doubt that. And I think in terms of talking about life and death and justice, etc., I think it's quite visceral. And there is a tendency to that. I'm not justifying it. Um, I wasn't aware of that. From this distance, it's hard to check. I'm quite sad to hear that, that that's the case. Let's talk about disability. I spent some time the other day talking with Joan Hume, who was fantastic, and I have, uh, it was really disturbing and eye-opening to me to hear the genuine place of concern from which 
she comes and which I'm sure you share, which is there are attitudes expressed in the society towards disabled people which are probably, to put it mildly, dismissive of them. Mm. Oh, that's true. At the symposium, uh, Nancy Elliott from New Hampshire got up and spoke about, you know, if you're arguing this publicly, you need to have several lines of attack, particularly if one of them gets knocked over. Mm -hmm. And she talked about disability abuse as being a particularly strong mm. thing and to get disabled people to speak. Mm. In fact, I think she used the expression that the disability argument is really kicking it right now, which <laughs> I thought was, was a very American expression. Yes, I suppose it is. <laughs> the clear impression I got from the Hope Symposium was that the people with disability were going to be more vulnerable under these laws and perhaps were more vulnerable under these laws yep. in these countries. So so when I went to uh, Netherlands, Belgium and Oregon, mm -hmm. I went to the peak disability groups in these three countries mm -hmm. to ask them, and I put to them in, in a neutral way. I said, these are not my questions. I'm going to ask you a whole range of them mm -hmm. about coercion, vulnerability, about being made to feel less valuable, about mm. be, there being pressure because it's more economically beneficial to the country to get... I asked them a suite of these questions and unanimously they said, no, there is no issue. I'll read you a couple of the quotes. Mm -hmm. This is Pierre Gisselink, who's the president of the Belgian Disability Forum. Mm. I have not, and we do not have any knowledge about it, this is vulnerability or insecurity, but I'm sure, and in my opinion and in the opinion of the BDF, we have no fear that people with disabilities are more vulnerable since the law was installed. Ilya Soffer from uh, Lederen in the Netherlands, who represent 250 disability organisations, when I asked about safeguards, she said, I think the most important protection in this law is this issue of your own judgement. The other protective issue is there must be a case of unbearable suffering. This must be assessed by two or three doctors and also the family around and the person themselves. So I think that procedure, which is a very strict procedure, if you look in the Netherlands, I think you see more people complain on how strict the procedure is than on how coercive it might be for people who are vulnerable to these kind of practices. Mm -hmm. And Bob Jundef, the Director of Disability Rights Oregon, said, since the law has been passed, we have not received a complaint from anyone other than a complaint from a person who is paralysed, who is concerned that the law discriminated against them mm -hmm. because the law requires a person to self-administer and they were physically incapable of doing that. Mm -hmm. It bothers me that the impression given to the disability community here in Australia is they have something to fear, whereas the lived experience of peak disability representatives in these countries suggests quite the opposite. Mm. You'll find um, there are, I mean, just the disability group is not a homogenous community by any sense of imagination, uh, incredibly diverse. You will find, um, even in Britain, uh, there are some disability activists who sort of say, no, I don't see there'll be a problem. All I can really say is that we don't, dismiss these concerns. Just as much as Belgium and, and the Netherlands are different societies, we should be striving to work hard to ensure that people with disabilities are, are, are a respected, valued and integral part of our communities in every respect. I agree entirely. I but you. should you be amplifying those concerns, which is what I think you do? Oh, well, I'm, I'm interested to hear that. I'm not amplifying them. I'm very conscious of the fact that disability people need to speak for themselves in the disability community. Um, I let them speak for themselves. They're the ones saying this. The information people here in Australia are getting is a very fear-inducing picture of terrible things that are going to happen to them. Mm. But in the places <coughs> where these laws exist, those terrible things haven't happened. They are different societies. That's the only comment I can make about that. And, the, and also the fact that these... People in Australia are making it in their context. They're not talking in the Belgian context. They're saying if we brought a lot in here right now, 
this is the way we experience life here, this is what we fear. Now, whether those fears are actually, again, empirically able to be proven or not, really, I don't think it really comes into it. Um, it's their, their story. <laughs> Leave them speak for their story. The, the other thing I noticed uh, Nancy talked about, and, and why this is relevant, is she was mm. guiding people about how to prosecute oh, the yeah. argument in public. Yeah. And, and the list of things, another one was elder abuse. Mm -hmm. Similar thing, that the elderly in, in our society and, and in any society are vulnerable. So a very, very fair question to raise in the context of assisted dying. Mm -hmm. Probably affects them more than any group. Uh, so again, uh, I went to the peak elderly groups in these three countries to ask their view on these questions of vulnerability and coercion. And again, across the board, it was, we do not see any evidence of this. In fact, they, it was interesting, they went further. They said it is the opposite. They said that this has empowered our members and for those who face the prospect of a terrible death, it's, it's given them comfort. Mm. So I question the assertion from someone like Nancy, who was at your symposium, mm -hmm. that the elderly are facing abuse when the lived experience of the people in these countries is the opposite. Again, I, I come back to you and say, look, they're different, different societies. I don't know that we can compare them. I'm, again, it's encouraging. But you, the point you made about sort of people feeling empowered by having this knowledge, look, there's truth to that. There's no question about that. But what I would question is also that I think if people had a lot more understanding about their ability to exercise their autonomy in the framework of a good care plan um, and with good quality palliative care absent euthanasia, I think that there's every chance they would find the same reassurance. And that's the problem I have with it. You know, I mean, elder abuse is a, is a, it's a modern phenomenon that is of serious concern. And again, I tend to point to the fact that this is evidence of this concept that people are vulnerable. They are vulnerable. They are in difficult circumstances. And the connection between euthanasia and assisted suicide, therefore, though not proven entirely, is definitely worth considering. Definitely worth considering. But based on their words, I think it's fair to argue that by their assessment, it is possible to create a system where elder abuse is not an issue. Well, um, absent the human condition, perhaps. I, I don't think you could... You could but be, they're human I, beings. No, no, no. But I'm just saying, I don't think you can be that absolute about it. No, but, but it's, it's, it's mm. certainly possible to say that in their countries, they were capable of doing that by their assessment. No, well, they, no, no, no. You, you, I mean, I, I take your, your word on that. I haven't... So, Paul, Aussie, 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 oi, 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 where's your faith in us? Why can't we do this? Perhaps we can. Um, perhaps we can, but I don't think we can fall into the trap, which I think is quite utopian, really, in saying that we can actually create a law that works. To think that every doctor's going to always work ethically, that that there is going to be no circumstances where someone's consent to a euthanasia or a request for assisted suicide isn't influenced by all sorts of subcurrents of thought, uh, suggestion, pressure. I don't think we can do that. And, and again, that, that's, that's the point where when you think of um, disability, when you think of elder abuse, where these things can occur. And, and more than that, simple, simple little nuances of words or thought, oh, it's your decision, Grandma. 
you know, it sounds like a, it sounds like a good thing just to say to affirm someone's autonomy and say it's your 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 decision. But what does grandma hear? Well, you don't know. That's it's a lifetime experience in between those two persons that informs what grandma hears when you say it's your decision. You know, so I, I really don't think um, when we're talking about difficult circumstances, uh, an interplay between all sorts of personalities, that we can naturally do something in terms of a law. That, that, that we can sit back and say, that works. I just don't think it's possible. Well, I think the overseas experience uh, would, would disagree with that. Can I talk about something which I think is a, a more problematic, mm. which is, I think, about clear misinformation? And it's, it's Alec Schadenberg, who I, I had a long conversation with at your symposium. And I bought his book, Exposing Vulnerable People to Euthanasia and Assisted Suicide, which uh, I think is still for sale on your... Mm-hmm. Is it a good seller? It has been, actually, yeah, yeah. Is it peer-reviewed, do you know? Well, what he's doing is just in, just citing studies that exist, which I imagine, and because they come from journals, are themselves peer-reviewed, yes. That's correct, they are peer-reviewed. His big claim is that this is not his just his opinion, uh, but that he's gone back to the original surveys done by uh, medical and other authorities in Belgium and Netherlands to see what it is they're doing. And, and he said in this book that this is proof that uh, no assisted or dying or euthanasia law can protect vulnerable citizens. For example, he went to the New England Journal of Medicine 2009, an article called uh, Medical End-of-Life Practices Under the Euthanasia Law in Belgium. It's a page turner, let me tell you. <laughs> and what it's looking at is the unreported cases of euthanasia mm-hmm. or those deaths occurring without an explicit patient request. Now, Alex's conclusion was this. Most people who die by euthanasia without explicit request are from a different demographic group to those who request euthanasia and that this group is more vulnerable, that is, they're elderly, often incompetent patients with cardiovascular disease or cancer, often dying in hospitals. On the face of it, that is a pretty scary conclusion. You know, that's basically saying that there are doctors there who are killing elderly, vulnerable patients. Yes. So when we went back to the original articles, which are peer-reviewed, as you said, we found that he'd omitted the conclusion of the article, which directly refutes what he's saying the article is about. And what he omitted was this. We found that the enactment of the Belgian euthanasia law was followed by an increase in all types of medical end-of-life practices, with the exception of the use of lethal drugs without the patient's explicit request. No shift towards the use of life and in drugs in vulnerable patient groups was observed. That's a pretty significant omission, wouldn't you say? Oh, I'd have to go back and fully reread it myself. But um, no, I look. I need to have a close look at that. Mm. But I, and, and, and I will. It really worries me because we found uh, almost half a dozen instances of this. And I'll, I'll, if I may, I'll give you one other mm-hmm. clear example, and I'll take you through to my f- final point mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. Another article he says that he's been through is the physician-assisted deaths under the euthanasia law in Belgium, a population-based survey which was in the Canadian Medical Association Journal in 2010, mm-hmm. peer-reviewed. His conclusion was, and I quote, that vulnerable people die by euthanasia in Belgium and these deaths are not being reported, making it an invisible crime. An invisible crime, that's a serious allegation. But again, he hasn't included the conclusions that the authors of this article draw, which absolutely disagrees with what he's saying is their conclusion. This is what he left out. As was shown in other research, 
No evidence was found to support the fear that once euthanasia is legalised, the lives of elderly patients would be more likely to be ended with the assistance of a physician. Older patients thus seem not to be at higher or increasing risk of euthanasia after legalisation. I mean, this is really, not to put too fine a point on it, it's intellectual dishonesty, isn't it? Again, I'd have to go back and have a look at it. Um, I, I, I do. I've, I've read, read those reports, but um, it was some time ago. Uh, really, what Alec is doing here by carefully picking the information he needs is trying to paint a picture of a cold and uncaring medical community committing invisible crimes. Isn't that right? Well, that's your opinion of it. Um, Isn't I, I mean, it's it's hard to draw another conclusion. Uh, well, I know Alex quite well. I don't imagine he would intentionally do that at all. Um, Significant omissions, though, what would explain them? I, I, I really can't comment. I, I wish I could. I'm, I'm slightly dumbfounded by it, I must admit. And, yes, I mean, you make the point. I do sell the book. Um, and so there's an association there. Um, I really would like to have a look at that further. The fact you sell the book is one thing, but what's of more interest to me is that there are half a dozen endorsements from different Australian politicians mm -hmm. who are clearly happy to disseminate what I think most politely you could call is highly compromised research. And my question to you is, these are serious questions. They should be raised about how safe is the system, mm -hmm. who is vulnerable, how do we safeguard them. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be better if the information in the public square was not muddied with this kind of distortion? I think the information in the public square should be as accurate as possible. In terms of the endorsement by a number of members of parliament, um, you know, I think it's easily understood that they read the book and thought, well, OK, and, and so I don't imagine they would have gone back and checked every last dot and tittle, as they said. So, I th you know, I, I think that's perhaps drawing a little bit of a long bow. But, yes, I, mean, you know, I, th I think you're right. Let's finish on probably the most difficult area of all with this because it's such a grey area. What's called the lawyer cases, life-ending acts without explicit request, which is where they look at the clinical practice of doctors dealing with uh, patients in their last 24 or 48 hours of their lives. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm assuming you're aware that there was a study published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal last year which revisited those something like a thousand cases that have become so controversial. Mm -hmm. Because I know that, uh, as Hope puts it, and I think as Schadenberg also puts it, that these were uh, undeclared euthanasia deaths. They were not reported. Um, depending on which study you're talking about, there were a number. There were some that went back to the death certificates. And the number that's generally thrown around is about a thousand cases, which is a lot. Mm -hmm. well, I guess it is quite significant, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Of unreported deaths. So they revisited it all to try and examine to what extent they truly did represent the uh, non-voluntary termination of life. Mm -hmm. And the report found that while doctors reported the measures they took as life-ending acts without explicit request, they perceived their actions in terms of symptom treatment. They did not classify their acts as euthanasia. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. It was, there was some, I think it was um, a study on the, uh, again, going back from death certificates on uh, the incidence of unreported um, deaths in, uh, I think it was the Netherlands, where they were sort of they sort of looked at them and they said, well, okay, well, some of these clearly the doctors didn't think they were euthanasia, but for some reason the researchers did. Uh, there were somewhere there was some confusion about it. There was somewhere it had been clear that um, the people had earlier had identified that they would want to be euthanized. So the, you know, it's, so it's not a category. It's not you can't turn around and say, well, you know, there's a thousand murders for you. 
You just can't do that. But when you consider that the fact that consent is one of the hallmarks of, of both Belgium and the Dutch legislation, I mean, evidence of it is an important factor. I agree. And when I first read this, I was really confronted. And like you and like I think any reasonable person, I went, what the hell? How could that be? But as I look more closely at the studies, what it's describing is doctors increasing combinations of drugs, in particular opiates, which aren't a euthanasia drug, mm. in response to pain and the very distressing symptoms of people who are dying. Mm. And they didn't have the explicit request of their patients because mm -hmm. they're in the last hours of their, their life, mm -hmm. uh, at most the last 48 hours. In mm. fact, almost 60% of them had had a conversation prior to that. But that this was a compassionate and decent uh, act of medical care at the end of life, the kind of act which happens in palliative care units around the world and in, in Australia mm. on a weekly basis, isn't that right? In terms of opioid use, yes, um, that's exactly right. They can't be classified as euthanasia in those cases. So life ending without consent, I mean, someone's determined that the life was ended by that action. In terms of double effect principle, um, if the intention is to relieve pain, to relieve symptoms, and the, uh, a known side effect is possible of hastening death, that is not an unethical act. It is no, not, that, is, not, not that is correct. And what they found with that survey last mm. year, when mm. they went back to it, mm. is that uh, almost 90% of the doctors said that that was their primary intention. So it was indistinguishable, mm. really, from what is accepted, and I, I believe by Hope and others, a supportive mm. practice in palliative care. Oh, it is a supportive practice in palliative care. I mean, there has been a race at some point in time saying, oh, well, you know, you can't know what a doctor's intention is. Well, you know, I'm, I, th I think you can measure it in many, many ways. Certainly the fact, as you mentioned, that it was by use of opioids tends to suggest... Um, that it wasn't that those ca those cases weren't euthanasia cases should never have been reported as euthanasia cases and were in fact good eth medical ethics. It tends to suggest that because, uh, as um, Dr. Paul Dunn says, uh, palliative care specialist and others, is when you when you are on a um, an opioid regime for pain management, you can't just simply sort of up the dose with the deliberate intention of killing anyone anyway because you, you, build, you have a tolerance in your system to it, it's almost impossible. And it would be clearly discoverable on the medical charts that you you know, you know brought in a semi-trailer load of, of opioids to do it. That doesn't work. And that's a, an interesting point. You know everyone in the medical profession, unless they're being ignorant or in denial, knows that patients are being hastened, their deaths are being hastened around Australia in different circumstances quite commonly. It's it's an open secret. No, I don't think it is. I don't think they're being hastened at all. I have on the record doctors, and including a senior palliative care physician, talking openly about hastening death it, and, and also talking about that they know that this happens within the medical community. You're so, talking about cases where they deliberately... Yeah, knowingly hasten death. No, 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 it's the difference between knowingly and deliberately. Mm -hmm. Same thing. No, it's not the same thing. No, 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 as in, in <laughs> they knew what they were doing and they knew why they were doing it. Still not. Is, was their intention to kill the person? Yes. That is the, that, yes, that is the, their intention was to hasten their death. So their intention was to kill? Their intention was to hasten their death, yes. Come back again. Their intention was to kill. Uh I'm always interested in the use of that word kill. As one palliative care physician in St Vincent said to me, it's murder. And I said, but you're an intelligent man. Surely you see that there is a significant difference between an aggressive and unwanted act 
and uh, sincerely request a compassionate act. He said, nope. Again, goes back to intention. Was the intention to kill? Is no, the, the intention was to end that person's suffering. And as palliative care themselves acknowledge, there is some suffering that can ultimately only be alleviated by death. But again, we're talking about you said intention to end their suffering. Yes, that's, that's not an intention to kill. I would suggest you're splitting hairs no, here. No, I'm not. It's a well-acknowledged moral distinction and ethical distinction. And what sits on the other line of that ethical distinction, as mm -hmm. I've discovered, because it's very strong within palliative care, mm. is a whole group of patients screaming for more pain relief who are refused it. And that, to me, is a real problem. They should not be being refused pain relief. Look, their own survey of the 106 palliative care units in Australia last year showed that 22% of their patients died in moderate to severe pain. So by their own admission, mm. they simply can't control all pain. And, and look, that makes sense that they would say there were some cases because if they would say, oh, look, we can fix it all, you know, you don't have to worry at all when, you know, they're going to open themselves up to some pretty massive lawsuits probably. But yes, I agree, we, we cannot always help all people that, I mean, I can't sit here and say, don't worry, your end is going to be just fine. I don't know that, I can't confirm that. But I do know there are people who believe they have the expertise and have, have used their expertise over many years that have achieved that. What we can see clearly, however, is there is a need for an improvement in that area. I don't think anybody mm. uh, is arguing that there should be less resources put into palliative care or that it serves a valuable service, or that the people in it are deeply impressive, you know, doing mm. very hard things. Mm. But equally, and within palliative care themselves, there is the reality that just as people live in complicated ways, they die in complicated ways. Oh, and it is simply not possible to manage all people's deaths in a way that everybody would like. And it's that small group, and it's always a small group that mm. avail themselves of these laws, mm -hmm. that small group who these laws are designed to help. What I see, uh, there is a compassionate and rational way to do this. I see that absolutely we should be compassionate. I think we can do much better. There are some people for whom the slightest bit of pain is difficult. There are some who can manage amazing amounts. I've seen that variation. And so we, we are, in, in many respects, talking about a, a subjective thing. We are in the terms of the law anyway. We're talking about um, unbearable suffering. It's totally subjective. But I just don't see how a, a blanket law that puts other people at risk can be justified by that. I think what that demands of us, we can't just say, oh, well, we feel really sorry for that little group, but we need to draw this line. We can't do that. It can never be that. But I think we do actively cause ourselves a problem when we identify that problem and then jump to this solution because I think there are other solutions. I'm certain there are other solutions. Whereas I, I guess I would put it the other way, which is I think it is demonstrable that you can create a system which gives sufficient protection to those you are worried about. That, to me, is a far more moral thing to do than to say, no, it's too hard, it can't be done, and to turn your back on the people we know are suffering in horrible ways well, in our country every week. You, you've just made a juxtaposition with something I fundamentally don't agree with anyway, and that's just leaving them there and saying we can't do anything. No. But it's, it's not that people don't want to do anything. As we've just agreed, there is a point at which medical science, there's groups of people, and it's not one particular disease, although if you were to name one, where they all say it's beyond us, it's motor neuron disease, yeah, yeah. but where groups of people can't be helped because people die differently. Um, 
you're saying can't be helped. I don't agree that we can't be. So that's where, that's where I think uh, there's a divergence of paths. But look, in terms of, of what, what do we actually create when we create a law on euthanasia? And my argument is this, that we create a right. It's called the right to die after all. And we are creating a right to die and we are saying at the beginning and we're going to have it, it's going to be for people with six months less to live, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we're going to say, there's all this, there's the safeguards package, let's go. Um, what happens, I believe naturally, is that people will see that for what it is. They've created a right and then they've limited it to a small group. And so what we will see is people outside of that group ultimately say, I want my right too. Um, and, and you know, they would have every reason to, to ask that. They would say, well, it's discriminatory. All right, I've got 12 months to live, but, you know, I really am suffering. I want to go now. Why are you making me wait six months? You, you know, I, I think that's inexorable. Whether we talk about a slippery slope, you know, people will say, oh, well, you know, the law in Oregon never changed. Well, you know, it was only last year that... Um, uh, an MP there was trying to push it out to 12 months from six months. But it hasn't changed. I mean, you would have to work very, very hard, Paul, to find problems with the Oregon legislation, a, a pitifully small number of people within mm. very narrow definitions. Mm. And that society may look at that and go, yeah, we realise now this this has worked mm. and we realise there's a whole group of people who are suffering needlessly from 12 months rather than six months. They may they may make that decision in an intelligent mm. and informed way based on their 17 years of experience. Yeah. Mm. I, when you talk about rights, I've, there was a beautiful response from Eric Willick from the uh, Royal Medical Dutch Society, their policy officer, mm. and I asked him about this right to die and mm. he said, there is no right to die. Death is just a fact at the end of life. He nice. said, what there is is a right to request help to die, but that's the only right. Okay, well, that's an interesting way of putting it. Yes, I mean, that, well, this whole question of choice comes in then, doesn't it? You know, so I can request it. So that's the point where I've made a conscious decision to request it. And then it's it's up to a doctor or a number of doctors to agree. And again, we go back to this question about what that does. And we can reflect this back into the disability community again. When someone, effectively, those doctors is saying, well, okay, you know, you've made this request. You've said your life is unbearable. You don't want to go on. We agree with you. Um to me, there's a, there's a little, little um, difficulty there that some people, or the people in the disability community I know recognise as being a key point, that someone else is also agreeing your life's not worth living. Um, that's different from agreeing that you're in pain. That's different from agreeing that you're in difficulty. It's, it's, it's gone beyond that. It's saying, it's, it's subtly perhaps even saying, if I was like that, I wouldn't want to live. If I was like you, I wouldn't want to live. And that's the kind of rhetoric that, we, that the people in the disability community say they hear intrinsically uh, on a regular basis. As I listened to Paul returning to one of Hope's favourite themes, that a law which is entirely voluntary and which can only be accessed by people with untreatable suffering would somehow be used to persuade disabled people to their deaths, I was suddenly reminded of an old cartoon from the 60s. Do you remember Milton the Monster? Do you remember that cartoon? Vaguely, vaguely. So it's this ridiculous cartoon where he creates a monster, but in it he puts in six drops of terror. Six terror, five six drops of sinister sauce, yes. Drops, and that's kind of how a lot of what I think... It's all coming back to me. Very good. A lot of what I... That's what a lot of the arguments I see... With respect, hope puts that seems to be a lot of what it's about, which is if we just put in the drops of terror, the sinister source, and we can really scare ourselves about it. 
and you know, that looking at the Schadenberg examples, for example, I, I think there's I a lot of sinister it. source in there. Okay, fine. Well, I appreciate that sort of outsider looking in. Perhaps that's fair, and that's. Uh, I'd, I'd say it's not fair comment, but I'll. Um, and on one I, level, I'll, it doesn't surprise me because if I'm trying to win a fight, then um, I'm. These are probably tactics I'm going to employ. Well, tactics, tactics, talking points. We all do it. Everybody, everybody is pushing an issue or defending against an issue. Does exactly that. That is part of, I suppose, the game of it all. It's, it's no doubt about that. Because it's a moral and ethical thing, and because it's for me a sense of justice, it's sometimes it touches deeper places. And sometimes, sometimes it is about winning. Sometimes it is. On top of old Horror Hill, in a secret laboratory, Professor Weirdo and Count Kook were in their monstrous glory. Six drops of the essence of terror, five drops of sinister socks. I'm indebted to Paul and the speakers at the Hope Convention for their invitation. It was their warnings about the many failings, even crimes, to be found in Belgium, the Netherlands and Oregon that guided my inquiries. I use their accusations as my framework for questioning how these laws work overseas and repeatedly I found those accusations wanting. It's worth noting that at the time of recording this podcast, four months after my conversation with Paul, Alex Schadenberg's book was still for sale through the Hope website. If you'd like to know more, head to the episode page at wheelercenter.com slash betteroffdead. In our final episode, I'm going to lay out what I think a law for assisted dying in Australia should look like and we'll hear from the one group of medical professionals who officially support such a law, those who see the suffering of patients daily and up close, Australia's nurses. Twelve angels from the north Twelve angels from the south Twelve angels from the east Twelve angels from the west Better Off Dead is produced by Andrew Denton and Bronwyn Reid for Thought Fox and the team from the Wheeler Centre. Visit wheelercentre.com slash betteroffdead to hear the series and subscribe and to learn more about the people and ideas from each episode. Angels shooting from your brow Angels leaping from your mouth Angels lighting on your shoulders East and West North and South